I had thought that possibly those handouts that I had last week would have survived, but apparently um, some house cleaning made it so that they didn't survive. And so I thought, well, what could be better than to go to the book of Colossians and, um, and take this text, which I think is one of the most lucid, clear texts on who Jesus is, probably the first epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote, the first Epistle meaning, of course, letter. And, um, you know, what's, uh, what's better than just drinking from the pure Word of God? So um, we're going to do that today. Hopefully we'll also have a chance to be able to uh, get to know Pastor Meyer a little bit better as well. But let's start with a word of prayer. O oh Lord and Savior, by your infinite grace and mercy, you have shown to us the pathway of eternal life. It is not an easy path. It is a road that must go through the flesh of Christ. And in the body of this person named Jesus Christ, we have found the deity itself, that God's fullness of his nature has actually dwelt inside of and in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray that we ourselves might enter into that ship in order that we might be able to reach that great goal of eternal life in him. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Yeah, <clears throat> well, as, uh, as we're all, how many, anybody, how many of you are also struggling with some sort of a in the, you know, in the yeah. okay, <clears throat> well, I don't know where it comes from, but I've noticed that whenever I'm on vacation, I never get sick, so that's an encouragement to be on vacation. All right, um, let's start at Colossians chapter 1, and since everybody here has the NIV, let's uh, read verses 1 and 2 together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Okay, now, the first principle of all uh, apostolic writings is the fact that each apostle has received a commission from Christ, right? So, as we now are going to be talking about the calling of a pastor, we have to uh, take into consideration that this is not just uh, that we're grabbing somebody and saying, hey, Joe, uh, why don't you be the pastor of our congregation? Uh, we are actually connected to the broader church, and there's an authority that has to be able to come from God himself. And that, this is something which for, is, is a little rough to understand. Sylvia and I were talking about this the other day. Um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a video that was made off of a book called The Hammer of God, it was a Swedish theologian, Bulgaritz. And, um, and in this, uh, this story, um, you find this man who is dying and his Swedish pastor who has become a, a victim of the Enlightenment. The Swedish pastor really, in a sense, doesn't know what to do with this dying man. What do you say to somebody like this? Well, in this Enlightenment, you know, the content of sermons were things like how to you know, improve your life or how to be able to 
um, balance your time schedule or how to be able to plant your crops or whatever it might be. But here, all of a sudden, this guy has to come face to face with the question of what do you say to somebody when they're dying? And it was a, a, a laywoman, a, a woman who is a, a pious believer who comes to him and she speaks to him about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And when you, when you see that, you'll say, well, why do we need a pastor at all? But there are, I guess you might call it, two kinds of authority. There's the general authority that we all receive as Christians, which is the right to be able to speak the gospel. I say when the war is over with and when you declare that the war is no longer going on or that Japan has just signed this, uh, this, uh, this uh, surrender, <clears throat> the news goes out, and it would be crazy if we would say, well, the war is only over if the president, if we hear the president saying those words. Um, you would say, no, uh, the war is over with. It's an objective fact. And everybody runs out into the streets and everybody declares that the war is over with. And it brings comfort and consolation to the hearts of everybody because everybody's proclaiming it. <clears throat> Christians have been receiving, you have as a Christian the right to be able to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and bring comfort to the hearts of people who are dying and letting them know that Christ is their Savior and that there is now peace between God and man because he's died for the sins of the whole world. And that's what that lady did. But there is also a formal word. And this formal word of authority is something which has been given to us in the office of the ministry. And when Christ uh, meets his disciples after his resurrection, he says to them, <clears throat> Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, whosoever sins you remit, you forgive, they are forgiven unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Say, so, well, my goodness sakes, why, do, uh, why would you give that authority to a person that they could actually say to somebody, your sins are not forgiven. That they are being bound so that their sins can't be forgiven. Well, there, there, there's this responsibility. Why do we do that? Well, as parents, wouldn't it be great if as you were raising your children, you as a parent could never say no. You'd have to only say yes. Wouldn't that just be wonderful? No, you could never say to your kids, uh, you have to come in at this hour, or to say to your kids, don't speak to your mother like that. You just have to be able to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And while they become wild animals, right? And of course, God gives you that authority, and not the authority to somebody else, because not only do they belong to you, but you're the one who actually, out of love, knows how to be able to discipline. And you use discipline and love, you use binding and loosing as a way of being able to prepare their hearts because they need to be able to be confronted over sin and they need to be able to be cleansed. Now, when I was up in, um, in Duluth, Minnesota, a lady by the name of Jean Garten came. She, I don't know, some of you that are older <clears throat> might remember this lady. She really started kind of the pro-life movement in the Missouri Synod. 
She wrote a book called Who Broke the Baby? Beautiful book. She's an excellent speaker. But Jean Garten was saying that it was known up in northern Minnesota that oftentimes girls who had had abortions, when they wanted to be able to deal with that, they wanted to speak to a Roman Catholic priest. So why would they do that? Because priests are opposed to abortion, right? You would think that they would run to your local ELCA church where the pastor would say, oh, it's okay. You were just trying to be able to make your life better. And besides, you got pregnant out of wedlock. And this, this is what people do. They want to be tied down, you know. No, they want to talk to a priest. Why? Because the priest agreed with what their conscience was telling them. And the same person who actually calls sin what it is is the only person that you can actually believe when the gospel of forgiveness comes. In other words, authority is established by the law in order that the gospel and its pardon and forgiveness can be believed. So if your parent is telling you what you want to hear the whole time, when they compliment you, you can't believe them. If people are, in a sense, lying to you, therefore, you can't believe them. And so what Jesus does is he institutes the office of the ministry for the binding and loosing of sins so that the shepherding of a pastor is that he actually uses God's authority for the purpose of both binding the heart on matters of sin in order that there might be a release of the heart when there is the forgiveness of sins. So, bear in mind this so-called twofold authority, direct and immediate. Direct authority means that God has called His church into this world for the purpose of telling the wonderful news of Christ's forgiveness of all mankind. And God has instituted the office of the ministry in order that it might be administered in the context of the Christian congregation especially. So, <clears throat> that's... Um, those of you that come to my Wednesday Bible class, you'll be very proud of me that I didn't take the entire class over just a couple of words. Um, the um, kind of soothes the throat. Okay, so Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Now, so he's saying that they've heard the gospel, right? And that they have come to the faith. Do we hear the gospel today? Is it, being, is it making its way throughout the world? You think, I mean, how, when was the last time you heard the gospel in the newspaper? When was the last time you heard the gospel on TV? When was the last time you read about it on the internet? 
I see you guys are well exposed to the gospel. Um, it's a little rough, isn't it, today? And, you know, it's strange because in, a, in the world in which we are now living, with all our capacity for being able to promote the gospel in the world, it is strange how oftentimes it is silent and is not heard. What was really incredible, though, is that when we were down in Haiti, Pastor Mamans uh, was saying this, that in Haiti, uh, they would, they would, there would be some piece of news that they would hear about in one part of Haiti, like in Lakai, and they would, by car, drive to Port-au-Prince, and they would find that people in Port-au-Prince already knew about it, and they didn't have telephones, and they didn't have... They had, how is this possible? Word of mouth. By word of mouth, they had a better communication system than we do with this. Now, I don't know how it worked. He, th he thinks it's kind of magical, but... Imagine a world without telephones, without TVs, without... I know that it's kind of, kind of like that... Is it John Lennon that sang, sang that song? Imagine. But it, I think he meant something worse by it. Imagine that with no religion, too. But imagine a world without it. Would we be able to get the message of the gospel out to the four corners of the earth? And I think maybe... When information becomes precious, it actually does get passed. When it's not precious, then all of a sudden it's not something that we feel as though we need to pass on. It just, let's just put this in perspective. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Has death been conquered? Is forgiveness available for all? Do you think that possibly that beyond this creation we are going to enter into the presence of, a, of God in a new creation and that we are going to live forever? You don't think people want to hear that? Now, you and I both know that there's a lot of hard-heartedness and people would probably try to say no to that or try to refute it, but it is... I, know, I think somebody died in there, but um, you might want to check just in case. Chair is falling. All right. Now, Paul, Paul obviously says that this was something, this word of truth, he calls it, the gospel, is now being heard throughout the entire world and bearing fruit and growing. Um, how many of you have talked to somebody about the gospel in the last week and a half, two weeks. One, two, three, four, five, um, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. The um, you know you you say how do we go about this? This is the this is the question. Um, this is, you know, I've oftentimes uh, how you start that conversation is something that you, we, all, we all struggle with, isn't it? If it's a neighbor, if it's a friend, if it's a family member, sometimes even family members are the hardest people to talk to. Um, 
you usually start like this. You say something like, I like your loafers. Speaking of loafers, how's the job? Um, no, not quite like that. Um, but you, you would say, I th this is what I discovered when I was on that, down at Galveston. I served a summer vicarage on the island of Galveston. And it was my job to talk, cold talk, to people on the beach about Christianity. And I have to say, it was kind of a baptism by fire that prepared me maybe for being a mission pastor. But you, 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 be, you would be surprised to know that a great number of people, a great number of people, are truly underneath it all struggling with uh, deep issues. <clears throat> when I was... Um, when I was in college, uh, kind of, a, I guess you might say, it was, it was kind of the pre-going into the ministry kind of thing. Um, my mother would look at me with sad eyes because I would go out and I would come in about 1 o'clock in the morning in the, you know, the summertime and I'd be at a party where people were having beer and drinking. And she would look at me with these sad eyes, you know. And she was, Mothers can say more with sad eyes than they can with words, you know. But I'd say, Mom, I got into a theological discussion. And she'd continue to look at me with sad eyes. <laughs> but where, do you, where did Jesus find sinners that really cared about him? He found him among the publicans and the tax collectors, these sinners who are out there, and oftentimes they're people who actually can be extremely honest about their life. It's people who can't be honest that we have problems being able to witness to. Because they say, what? I don't need anybody to die for my sins because I really don't have any. They really are the sins of other people. You know, every form of psychological dysfunction has actually been invented by the conscience as a way of being able to blame others for personal sins. You know, projection, rationalization, justification, all these things that people do because they can't face it. And who faces it? Well, if we're honest ourselves, right, the, best, the first step towards becoming a witness of the gospel is to be a person in need of the gospel ourselves. And Christianity is not a religion where, uh, it's like, what does Mark say? That this is the crutch, if you will, of, of, the, uh, of the down and out people of this world, where only pe people only need Jesus if they've got problems in their life. No, everybody has them, just that not everybody is honest about them. So, how do you open up people's minds and hearts to listen to the gospel? Usually it starts by listening yourself. And you start listening to them and pretty soon they'll start revealing where the cracks and the fissures are. And instead of A, telling them immediately how it is that they can fix their problems, I've told you Dr. Scare's method of counseling. It's a two-point, uh, the two-point measure. You say, what's your problem? And then they tell you what their problem is. Then you say, get over it. That's it. 
you don't have to go to a counselor and spend about 100 bucks an hour after counseling like that. People actually, though, do need to be able to hear the gospel. And what ultimately is that, that gospel? Well, sometimes we go all the way right to the point of what? That if you were to die, what would happen? And everybody's got a great big wall set up in their mind so that they do not dare to go beyond that wall. So, um, the, um, the gospel, he says now, is bearing fruit. The word has its own power. And it is going to do something. You don't have to convince people yourself. It is not up to you to debate with them. You can just tell them about the wonderful news. I, and I, I'm going to repeat uh, what it is that I say to all my confirmants. I've said it probably in here 150 times. That when that Philippides came and ran that first marathon, I have to warn you that Pastor Meyer is a marathoner. Are you still marathoning? Are you still running marathons? I'm done with half. Yeah, okay. <laughs> half marathon. Which he deems to be a marathon. Um, he's, got a, he's got a son that can run 100 miles? Is that, what, what is? I want to add, he and a friend of his in June are going to run 850 miles uh, starting up in Canada. And they are raising money for mental health. So they're going to, they're going to accomplish that at about 40 miles a day. Speaking of mental health, <laughs> okay, um, Philippides, um, that, that first marathoner who ran from the plains of Marathon to Greece, uh, to, to Athens, and you know he proclaimed that the Greeks had won this battle, remember, against the Persians who were invading. I don't know, maybe it's my, my information might be wrong, but somewhere around a million Persians invading, 200,000 uh, of these Greeks, and um, these people are anticipating that they're going to all become sold into slavery, raped, whatever it might be that these armies do when they conquer people. And this Philippides comes running in. They open up the gates. He says, Nikon, we have conquered, and he dies. But we have conquered. The Greeks called that the oiangelon, the gospel, the good news. What are we saying? He has conquered. He has destroyed death. Now, in him, and this is the tangibility of it, in him, by being united to him in faith and the church itself in love, we now are going to ourselves be conquerors and not merely a shall be, but now a am. I, I actually am in Christ. Now I have been baptized into him. I have now passed from death into life. And this is, this is what Paul says. This is the hope. This is, this is all because of him. He, verse 7. Now he talks about the instrument. You have learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, 
and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now this is a, this is, we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of this. That whatever the Holy Spirit does, He does vertically and horizontally at the same time. That where there is faith in this wonderful gospel where the Holy Spirit creates that faith, there is also between ourselves this thing called love. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. That there is, we, we're loving each other. It's a love that we should have for each other because the Holy Spirit has made us siblings in faith. And Paul will always say that. Faith is faith and love. Faith and love. Those two go together. Horse and carriage. Verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, fill you. What is His will? What is the will of God? We sing the hymn, The will of God is always best and shall be done forever. All they who trust in Him are blessed. He will forsake them never. He helps indeed in times of need. He chastens with forbearing. All who depend on God, their friends, shall not be left despairing. He chastens with forbearing. The will of God. You know, we can, you, you, you say, all right, as a Christian, I want to be able to know the will of God in my life. All right, well, look at the Ten Commandments. It's not too hard to be able to figure out the Ten Commandments. Somebody says, tell something terrible about you. They're sinning against the Eighth Commandment. What do you do? How do you respond to that? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you stand fast? Do you stand firm? Do you defend your neighbor? How do you do that? But the hard part is the will of God when it comes to suffering. He chastens with forbearing. How do we as Christians come to see this? We've been dealing with a young couple that have been struggling enormously because the mother-in-law brought charges against her son-in-law because she wanted her daughter to divorce her husband. And so she claimed that her husband, this husband, was abusing his children. And we have a wonderful, wonderful Child Protective Services program that basically is blind, deaf, and dumb when it comes down to understanding the evil intents of people and how those things go. Today, as you probably have seen in all the press and the news, right, that basically accusations today, by and large, get accepted. An allegation is the same thing as a conviction. You don't have to worry about whether or not it's true. You don't have to worry about whether or not there's evidence of it. You don't have to worry about whether or not you can prove it. Now, all of a sudden, all you have to do is just make an allegation. And this guy, this man, this husband of this young woman, has a felony charge held against him for something he didn't do. And the mother-in-law has basically stolen four of their six children. Getting the courts, the same person who brought the allegations has gotten the courts to actually give her custody 
when she herself has made these false accusations. Now, the will of God is always best and shall be done forever. He chastens with forbearing. All who depend on God their friend shall not be left despairing. How many times have you found yourself in a situation where you wondered why in the world God has imposed something upon you and it seems as though you don't have the strength to be able to handle it? And that's where it is that we find ourselves in the darkness and all we can do is listen for the voice of our shepherd that says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. That's, you see, as Christians, everything that we need as, as a Christian has already been given to us. Everything. He has given us, we say it in the third article of the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting. He's already given us all that. And he has given us the promise that there's absolutely nothing that we can get from the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit still takes us through this life where we have to learn. And we have to grow. And we have to become wise. And the wisdom, hopefully, yes, that we can understand those commandments, first one, two, and three, four, five, and all the way through ten, that we can understand that will of God. But the will of God that we struggle with the most is when it seems as though He's forcing us to do something that exactly goes opposite of everything that we would ourselves expect. And yet, you know, look back, and all of a sudden we see, old Dr. Scare used to say, it's when we get into the car, it's only when we look back over our shoulders that we come to recognize that if God had not taken us down that road, there was something we never would have seen. Can you imagine? You become a Christian and all of a sudden your business starts prospering. Your kids never get sick. They're always respectful. You find yourself actually getting better looking day by day as a, as a Christian, you know? Everybody wants to become a Christian to that way. But Paul says, God chose what is weak and despised in the world, even the things that are not, in order to make foolish the things that are, that no human being might be justified in its sight. It's only by actually getting to the point where we recognize we cannot be saved, that we are not the ones who have the power to be able to make something out of our lives. And that in the end, that whole question of how are we going to get into heaven if we can't get past that barrier of heaven we can't get past anything. It doesn't matter. What good does it do for a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? Right? What good does it do if we have gained everything? If we're the richest people? And of course, you know, like Garrison Keillor. Oh, I don't dare talk about Garrison Keillor anymore either, do I? Some of you know about that whole story. Um, where all the men are strong and all the women... No, all the women are strong and all the men are good-looking and all the children are above average, right? That's what he talks about, Lake Wobegon. Isn't that the Christian church? No. That, those, those hymns that we sing, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Right? Yes, um... There is a, the, the world, we, there has to be 
a conflict between us and the world. And when God imposes that conflict on us, that's when our souls start searching for the depth of truth. And when we find it, we get wisdom. Wisdom. Okay, so long. Let's go back to this text. Verse 9, For this reason, since today we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of our Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that, and look at what he says, you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Yeah. Endurance and patience. Joyfully giving thanks. Thank you, Lord, for showing me what a sinful man I am. Hard prayer to pray, isn't it? Thank you, Lord, for showing me that life is short, that life is precious. Thank you for showing me that the only thing that matters is that we might know you and the power of your resurrection. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's what we pray for for each other. And so we look like we're a bunch of pilgrims trying to go from one place to the other. You know, the old one that you have to carry and the young one that you have to change their diapers. And you've got to be able to go through life. That's what we do together. That's what we are as a church. We're here for each other. And let's not be so, uh, what would you say, so perfect that we can live our little siloed lives. Right, where we are all so self-sufficient. God put us here to help bear each other's burdens, to teach each other wisdom, to pass that down to our kids, and to make sure that the next generation and the generation after that has a knowledge of the hope of the gospel. Yeah. All right, now... This verse, verse 13, you just cannot get away from in verse 14. Paul, the Apostle Paul takes us up out of the valley, up to this very beautiful peak. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The dominion of darkness... Have you ever heard, uh, you've been driving through the countryside and you'll see a dome? You know that word dome comes, that comes from this word dominion. And a bishop was always, there was a dome wherever a bishop was to be found. If you were permitted to be able to have a bishop in your town, you were actually given a, the right to be able to build a dome. A dome meant that that bishop was, of course, the ruler of that area which we have separation of church and state nowadays, so we don't have those things. But these bishops were given huge tracts of land throughout Europe. 
They estimate that somewhere around a third of all the land of Europe actually belonged to the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation. So these bishops would have this dominion. They would rule. Well, Paul says there is a dominion of darkness. We live in a world where darkness reigns. As, my, as I started off my sermon today, just look at, at the mess that the world is in. And the darkness is that here, here we are, you know, just even you take the subject of creation. You can see there's a lot of chatter about this tomb of Christ that, that was in the news here this last, last week, right? That they went down in, this is a church of the Holy Sepulchre where, um, you know, um, what happened was the Emperor Constantine kind of converted to Christianity. They, he converted, but at the same time he was pretty tolerant of other religions as well. His mother, however, went into the Holy Land and every place where she could find a, uh, a historic site. When, when Sylvia and I were there a number of years ago, we went to um, this well where Jesus had met the Samaritan woman. That well had been dug by Abraham 2,000 years before Christ. And it was a deep, 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 deep well. The uh, Byzantine Empire, this uh, wife, this mother of Constantine, she actually came and they built churches over all those sites. Well, they built a church over what was considered to be the tomb of Christ in Jerusalem. And, you know, of course, people were kind of poo-pooing it and whatever else not. Well, it had been built, the actual church of the Holy Sepulchre had been built by the Crusaders that came there, and that was at the turn of the millennia, about what, what, 1100, something like this. And they always thought, well, the crusaders just decided that they'd build that tomb and say that that's where Christ was buried. Well, they went down, and apparently they found or had some way of being able to date a stone there that came from the time of this um, mother of Constantine, and which really signaled uh, fairly accurately that these people who were only about 300 years behind Christ did know where these places were, and they saw this as historically true. They believed in the historical factuality of the resurrection of Christ. What has happened to our world today that it does not even blink at what that reality means? That's what we mean by the dominion of darkness. People who are, you know, when the ship is, uh, when you're on the Titanic, right? And the ship is going, loop, loop, loop. And everybody says, this is a ship that can't sink. It's been built so that it can't sink. And you go, yeah, right. Do you think that maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to maybe get in a lifeboat? You know, by the way, they didn't have enough lifeboats for all the people you know, because it was a ship that couldn't sink. There's a pastor friend of mine, I've told this story before too, but a pastor friend of mine named Marty Lundy, he was my pastor, campus pastor. His mother was the youngest of 21 children. 
she was a, she, they were Finnish. She came over because both her parents had died by then, and she was on the Titanic. And um, she, everybody kept saying, go to the highest, the upper level, because the ship, it, when it sinks, it'll just go down a little bit, but the upper levels could be the safest. She didn't understand English, and so she just knew that she was cold, so she went down to the lower level. When she went down to the lower level, that's where all the lifeboats were. And so they threw her on a lifeboat, and she was saved. We're, we're, we're dumb people. We just believe that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and that he's a historical reality, and that he's ruling the world right now. And we live as naive people, studying the Bible, praying. I think we're the people of light and the world with all of its glory and splendor and power and might. Remember, it's darkness. Wow. Um, we, got it. we have to read about Jesus, though, uh, who he is. Verse 15. He is the image, the ikonos, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember in the creed, begotten of the Father from eternity. Here's our timeline. I just... I just love it when we think of ourselves. Here's creation. We have a sense of time. And we can all kind of think that there is this thing that goes on forever and ever like this, like time, right? Do we ever stop to realize that it goes the other way too? That if eternity is forever this way, there's also an eternity forever this way. That there never was a time in which God was not. And He was begotten from eternity. He always has been, but begottenness is like generation, like electricity when you turn on a light and it generates. He has been generated from all eternity Forever and ever 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 this way and ever ever and ever and ever and ever and ever this way. And we're going to participate in this. But even from here, He knew us. Before creation, He is the first fruit, the firstborn over all creation, the prototokos. He is the one who is actually... He comes in here, and here's the creation. He is the first one into this. He is the first one to have entered into the eternity of, what do you call it? For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What's invisible? Yeah. Uh, not only just what we cannot see, but even angels themselves were created by him. He, he, he is this, this Jesus, this baby that was born. You know, they say that the shepherds were out in the fields, right? 
and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, the doxa. Who is revealing himself to those shepherds? The same baby that was in that cradle. We, this, we, can't, we can't begin to grasp what's being hidden in him. He is, and this, this, these words are, are, you have to kind of eat them ever so slowly. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, probably an indication that there are maybe levels of power, even within angels. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every single atom, molecule, subatomic particle in this universe is held together by his power. I just love it when our science tells us, they say, you know, that there are more universes out there that they now believe, more universes, universes, not just planets or stars, universes, than there are sands, grains of sand, upon all the seashores on earth. And when we can discover that, we all sit back and say to ourselves, oh, that just came about by chance. Just throw in a few billion years and I'm sure that we can get some more of those. All things are held together by Him. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have the full, His fullness dwell in Him, the fullness of His deity, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His one, two, three, go, blood. Through the symbol of his blood. Through, through the, the, the metaphor of his blood. Through his blood. And it meant that sacramental Christians, sacramental Christians, we are sacramental Christians because we believe we have to be reconciled to God through his blood. And that blood is in the waters of baptism. It's in the Lord's Supper. We are people who have come to be at peace with God through the blood of Christ. That's why it said in the book of Revelation, those of you in the first service, that when they have taken their robes and washed them, right, in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, I'm going to just take the last couple of minutes to, again, um, we want to uh, talk about Pastor Meyer. Now, he hasn't, he's been in that parish out in Terre Haute so long that, that everybody just thought he was a nice guy. He needs to have some tribulation. So what I want you to do is I want you to give him as hard a time as possible while I'm gone. Um, he is going to be, um, it's going to be in and out. He's going to be here and he's going to be teaching whenever he preaches 
he is going to be also teaching class here. Pastor Grady teaches, uh, preaches. He's going to be taking the Bible class. There will be some Sundays that he will not be here, but by and large, he's going to be a kind of, I guess you might call it, a vacancy pastor for me. And um, even though Pastor Grady is a, is a wonderful pastor and he is um, a very mature man, he's also new to the parish. And I wanted to make sure that the, the wisdom of Pastor Meyer is something that he could draw upon and Pastor Meyer would able, also be able to be here. He is, Pastor Meyer has been one of the very faithful pastors of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He has, uh, he has remained steadfast in this faith, and he is a pastor who has been a model and an example. I cannot tell you, I mean, even the president of the seminary served as a vicar under Pastor Meyer out in Terre Haute. So uh, I have the highest amount of respect for him, and, um, and especially because he put up with my wife in confirmation when she was in seventh grade. And, and she pretended to know her memory work then, too. <laughs> She's pretending as though, oh, no, I did my memory work. Yeah, she, she, she told me that she was, when she was in the car, her dad was dropping her off in class, that... Um, that um, that she, had, um, that she would pretend that she was working on her memory work so her dad would not ask her questions or ask her to recite her memory work for him <laughs> while she was on the way. But the, que- the, the $6 million question was, was it you or, your, or Christian that wasn't doing his work and Phil had to ask your dad? That was your, oh, your brother, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he, Sylvie's dad had been uh, his professor at the seminary, and of course, deeply respected, and of course, you're teaching now the children of your professor. So, what do you do, you know, when the kids are showing up and they don't do their memory work and such? And instead of just saying, you know, you got to do your memory work, or kind of tattling, he goes wisely to Sove's dad and says, what should a pastor do when he has a confirmand that doesn't do his memory work? He said, well, I would keep him after class. He said, well, thank you very much. And he kept his son after class. <laughs> I don't know if you, you remember that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> he had his head down. It was kind of hard to hard to talk. <laughs> All right, um, I, there is a. Um, this has been put up on my podium here for a good reason. Um, uh, free performance, and this is something that our, that our Phil Spray is going to be participating in. Um, it's at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. It's a concert. They call it a Reformation concert. We're always happy to see that non-Lutherans are interested in celebrating Martin Luther. But um, there is a, uh, some of the music there is by Michael Pretorius. Pretorius was actually the Kapellmeister in a place called Wolfenbüttel, which um, I'm sure that all of you would like to use that as a middle name for your children, Wolfenbüttel. But uh, our group is actually, our heritage tour is actually going to go to Wolfenbüttel um, it was the seat of the 
Dukes of Brunswick or Browns, uh, Brown, Brunswick, and um, and it's a it's an absolutely magnificent, beautiful church. And Pretorius was the capellmeister there. So as a kind of a prelude, if you would like to our trip this coming summer, uh, go to the concert and give yourself the treat of hearing uh, Phil Spray and others join in this beautiful selection of music. Heinrich Schutz uh, was uh, the Kapellmeister in, um, in Dresden, and he was the one who, um, they had these beautiful children's choirs and such that were there at that Church of the Holy Cross there in, in Dresden. All right, um, let's um, give you a chance to be able to uh, uh, introduce yourself to uh, Pastor Meyer. He's going to, when he comes, he's going to be coming and staying in my house. Uh, so if, um, if you're planning on going by and throwing eggs at anybody's house, um, don't throw them at mine uh, when he's there. Uh, we did, I did have, you know, I did have somebody that egged my car. Have you ever had anybody do that to you? you it's hard to get that stuff off, isn't it? But anyway, I, I told Sylvia, I said, never do it again. I, please. <laughs> okay, let's, let's close with a prayer. Oh, dear Lord and Savior, you are the one who hears all prayers. You are the ruler of all things. Remind us that you who have made all things, created all things, not just for yourself, but to that greater glory even of your Father, we pray that we ourselves today, as we meditate upon this mystery of your incarnation, may grasp the wonders of the gospel and the wonderful peace that you give to us. For in you all things have their being, their purpose, their direction. And we pray that even when the trials and the tribulations of life come upon us, that we might grow in our wisdom and see that you intend all things for our good and for the good of those whom you have called to yourself. In Jesus' name, we pray this and pray that our Advent season would be full of joy and happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.